Welcome to the Awake Asia podcast, where each episode I bring you everyday people doing extraordinary things to help you live a fitter, healthier, more purpose-driven, conscious lifestyle. In this episode, I talk with Daniel Riegler, the co-founder of Karana, a company offering young jackfruit as a plant-based alternative to meat. This meat alternative is made from whole plants, sustainably sourced, and I had a few taste tests now. I must say, the best and healthiest dumplings I've tasted in a long, long while. In this episode, we cover sustainability, other businesses in the plant-based space, and how the plant-based community in Singapore are working together to create solutions for a greener way of eating. Just a note, towards the end of our interview, we had to shift locations so there might be a change in the acoustics. We still managed to capture good audio during our chat. Now on to the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. When you walked in, you said you were stressed. You were, uh, you were under the pump. Oh, man. Well, we, we have quite a bit going on. I mean, we've been, you know, launching our, our kind of initial products over the last few weeks, and, and that's been going well, but it, it's busy. You know, right now, we're doing everything ourselves, so we're working on partnering with a number of restaurants. We've had some events. We've got quite a few more coming up including one this weekend. So it's just sort of, you know, nonstop on the sales and business development side. But on top of that, we're fundraising, we're onboarding a new team member. Uh, you know, we've got all the other normal day-to-day stuff of startup life. So it's, it's, it's a lot, but, uh, but it is fun. Indeed, indeed. So you, you said that you're starting up on doing a lot of stuff yourself. So explain what yourself, what are you kind of doing out there on the ground? Sure, sure. So, I mean, these we're, we have our, our jackfruit products, our young jackfruit products, and you know, as a business, we have a lot of other things that we're developing and sort of next generation products that make it more convenient and easy for people to eat whole plant meat alternatives. But this product is really designed for us to to test the market, to get people in Singapore, and then a bit later this year in Hong Kong more familiar with you know something like jackfruit as an ingredient as a meat substitute uh, and as part of that you know we want to manage the whole system ourselves so the last year has been spent working with suppliers building a supply chain getting this product together educating you know our first customers and we are right now we're managing the distribution and all the related logistics, you know, to the extent we can ourselves, mostly as a learning experience. You know, it's not something that that's sustainable in the long term, but uh, it's a chance for us to really learn, you know, the ins and outs of the business while we're still operating at a very small scale. Right. So right now, how many of you guys are in the team? So right now we have uh, myself and Blair, the co-founders. Uh, we have our head of product uh, coming on board right now. Um, so she's in Singapore right now. Uh, getting th- some things set up, uh, and we have um, some part-time support around social media marketing. And it- I know there's some misconceptions about jackfruit, and uh, of course, plant-based meats as well. And I definitely want to go in that. But I understand that you attended business school, and you were based in the U.S. Which part of the U.S. were you based in? Well, actually, I mean, I was back in the U.S. for business school, but I haven't spent really any of my career except when I was first starting out in the U.S. I've, I've been abroad most of it, including quite a lot in Southeast Asia. So uh, I, I was I grew up and, and was working in and around New York uh, early on, and I was back there for my MBA. 
But aside from that, I've really stayed clear of the U.S. Uh, I was based in Cambodia for several years and working around the region. Uh, I've spent time in East and Southern Africa. I've done some work in Europe. So I've, I've moved around quite a bit. Right. So what prompted your initial move out of the U.S.? Yeah, I think it was always, I, and, and to, to preface, I was, I was born in Europe and, and grew up, you know, partly outside of the U.S. and always spent a lot of time traveling. So that was always kind of something that, that came very naturally to me. But I, I wanted to, to get outside and, and see what else was out there and really get experience. You know, for me, there, there was always this exciting world of new things to explore and new opportunities. And, and I didn't want to miss out on any of that not missing out on any opportunities. So did you come straight into food industry or were you kind of in the corporate industry? No, I, I was definitely on the corporate side for a long time. I've always been very, very passionate about food. I've always loved food. But one of the things that was challenging for me, and, and early on, even actually while I was still in undergrad, I did an internship with the James Beard Foundation, which is sort of a, it's a nonprofit based in New York. And James Beard was one of the kind of early figures in American culinary student who really pioneered good food in the U.S. and using, you know, really good quality ingredients, really elevating, you know, what we know about food. Because food culture in the U.S., with a few exceptions, has not always been uh, the strongest. So I've always had this, this interest in food, but I've always struggled to connect it to a business that you can really scale and, and do in, in a way that kind of respects the integrity of food, um, I would say. And so it took a long time, but but while I was, especially while I was working in Asia, uh, I did have a lot of exposure to projects related to agriculture, supply chain. So there was always a, a connection to food and where food comes from, and that you know, is being someone who also has always been very conscious and passionate about sustainability. That's really what started to push me to connect those two things and and really start to think more about okay, what can I do that's actually meaningful and impactful in the food space. And so James Beard Foundation. So my my perception of American food is, of course, your hamburgers and your fast food and and baby back ribs and all that kind of stuff. But how does the James Beard Foundation elevate the American scene where food culture is concerned? So there's two main things that they do. Uh, they support sort of up and coming chefs and local food. So, you know, young chefs who have their own independent restaurants. They have the James Beard House, which was James Beard's former townhouse in New York. And almost every night of the week, they'll host a dinner there. And it's a great honor to be invited as a young chef to come cook at the Beard House. And they'll bring their team and they'll, you know, cook something that really features what they do. So these are chefs who generally are featuring very fresh local ingredients from great suppliers. Uh, so, it's that's part of it, and they also have the James Beard Awards, which are sort of like the Oscars of of food. Uh, so that's one element recognizing up and coming chefs who are really contributing to to improving food in the U.S. But another thing they do that's really cool is focus on school food programs, so really improving the quality of food in schools and education um, at a young stage and an early stage around you know nutrition, eating good quality food, what food should be. And that's definitely something that's seriously missing in the U.S. in many places, but especially in the U.S., I would say. Is that changing? No, because I understand that school lunch programs right now are, are pretty, pretty poor. Yeah. So has the James Beard Foundation impacted the school lunch program in any way? I think, I mean, I don't have any specific numbers I could speak to, but I would say holistically there is definitely a growing consciousness and school lunches are part of it, I think. I think that is on the whole improving, but there's also still a long way to go. So, you know, they're one of several organizations and 
groups that are are working to improve it, but still a lot more to be done. Yeah, I think, and uh, speaking of groups that are working, I know the Physicians Committee of Responsible Medicine, PCRM, I think they're working on school lunch programs as well to incorporate more plant-based foods into school lunches because I think that's really, really lacking. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, Humane Society, there's several organizations that have great programs and not just around schools, but hospitals. I mean, all these places where it's the most important to have be serving, you know, food that actually connects to your health and be educating people around food. And it's good that that awareness is starting to grow. But again, it's still, I think, in the early stages. Indeed. I was, um, during the PlanFit Summit, I interviewed a doctor and back in Melbourne, I remember I was sharing with him that I used to see the uh, McDonald's at the Royal Children's (laughs) Hospital. And he was sharing that it's not just in Australia, but in the US, you get like really, really in the hospital cafeterias, um, the food that really gets people there in the first place. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it can be pretty atrocious. My dad is a doctor, and it's always shocking. Uh, so I've you know I've eaten in hospital cafeterias a few times, and and I get a lot of experience around that. And it's yeah, it's quite horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's generally, and it's not that that they're serving that food, but that it's really in many cases the only choice. Indeed. So I want to go back, uh, go to your story. How did you move from James Beard and make essentially make that connection and make the shift towards more sustainable, more uh, conscious way of eating. So I think for me, you know, my priority with food was always about good food. You know, I grew up a lot with this more of this European food culture that food should be something that, you know, you... I remember, I have a strong memory as a a kid, a lot of other people would have, you know, Lunchables, which were these horrible, super processed, packaged, you know, you'd have like sliced cheese, turkey, all these disgusting things. But it was, you know, the cool thing to have in school. And I I would always ask my mom for those and my parents wouldn't buy them for me because they would make us real lunches. And so that was always something that, that we had. And it wasn't, you know, necessarily connected to eating less meat, but there was this awareness about, you know, eating good food. We always ate in a very diverse way. We always, you know, we went out to good places, but we cooked a lot at home as well. We grew up with an appreciation of food. So which part of Europe were you growing up in? Uh, Well, I was born in Austria, and so I would spend a lot of time there in the summers. Um, And there's obviously a very strong, you know, food and farm connection in in a place like that. Uh, And... So, so that has always been been a big part of my life, and that's really influenced. And you know, so for me, it was always important when I was traveling, and I, I love to travel. It was to eat and explore, you know, local food and understand, really get behind, you know, the local food culture as much as possible. So that's always been been part of me. But connecting that with sustainability, you know, moving from just you know, sort of turning my nose at fast food and, and big food and processed food and and starting to understand, you know, okay, what actually goes into our agricultural systems? What is the real cost of, of the food I'm eating? Even if I think it's, you know, better quality or more real or really getting that took a while. And, and I think that a lot of that was driven by actually seeing firsthand, you know, some of these projects around agriculture, aquaculture and seeing the entire system and and the destruction that it that it brings maybe maybe paint this a picture of what you saw in in your in your time sure i mean just you know you know on one side you have 
the actual experience of, of smallholder farmers, which is still where a lot of our agricultural projects are sourced from. I mean, when you think about you know the people actually growing the rice, I think we're very disconnected from the source of a lot of the food we eat. You know, we don't think about the guy on the rice paddy who is working really hard so we can pay next to nothing for for that bowl of rice. We don't think about the animal that goes through the process of ending up, you know, on our plate of chicken rice. And that, that I, I was guilty of the same thing. And, and it's it's easy to, to block that out. But but seeing that side, you know, the impact on the, the farmers themselves, the environmental destruction related to, you know, I mean, diverting water away from other needs to you know, fund animal agriculture, the runoff associated with something like aquaculture, which you think about, you know, growing farming fish. A lot of people think about it as a more sustainable approach, just fishing. But in actuality, a lot of the time you're feeding the fish fish meal, which is, again, just uh, net dragging fishing that picks up all the small uh fish grinds them up and there's a huge amount of bycatch. So even if fish are farmed in a very controlled, well-operated way, fish meal still contributes to huge uh, overfishing and, and um, issues in the ocean. So there's there's so many elements that just don't even come into into our, our perception of what's happening with food. And I think with fish as well, I think a majority of the fish that is in Singapore would be farm fish, wouldn't it be? I would definitely say, you know, most of it, especially sort of that generic uh, cheap fish that you're getting, you know, it's a lot of it is tilapia and things like that. So, so yeah, very likely. Often fish is thought of as with your high omega-3s and, and a health food. So, I understand the toxicity in in animal like in meat, but in fish pellets that they feed the fish. Um, do you know much about the constituents of the fish meal at all? Yeah, I mean it varies a lot, and there's not a lot of transparency. It depends a lot on where it's coming from. I, I can't speak too much the regulation. I know, it, but I know there's a lot of variants, and it there's a lot of contamination in fish as well. I mean, it depends. There's a lot of mislabeling when it comes to fish and not all fish are created equal in terms of health in terms of the quality what goes into them or the sustainability practices around so it's very very hard to really know what you're getting with fish uh, unless you know you've tracked it to the source and that's quite rare during my trips to us i see a lot of um in whole foods particularly they talk about sustainably sourced fish so what's your take on sustainability yeah i think i mean there's there's a lot of efforts to be made i think there's always a fine line between greenwashing and and something that is really sustainable. And I I don't have, I'm sure there are some fish that are not overfished that could be considered done in a sustainable way, but trusting in that system, you know, that I think you're putting a lot of credibility. And and look, groups like Whole Foods do, I think, make an effort to, to do as much as they can, but ultimately they're still focused on selling products. And, you know, you're, at some point you're going to have to put a lot of trust into that system, which, yeah, I think it's always hard to say for certain that this is a totally sustainable method because there are bycatch issues. There are, you know, fishing is something that's very hard to to control and regulate, even with quotas. Even some countries have done a good job of implementing various systems, but you're still out there 
fishing generally in open waters and you don't know necessarily what's happening. There's a lot of uh, opaqueness in the supply chains. So I guess back to your story. So you had this kind of awareness throughout the years, but when was this, when was the spark lit in that sense where you suddenly decided that you wanted to change the way you were eating, change the way you were consuming? Yeah, with me, I, I'd say, I don't know if it was sort of an aha moment. It kind of was building over a while. So when I actually, when I first came to, to Southeast Asia, I, I was first in Thailand and I spent a, a bit of time in Chiang Mai. And there's some really, a lot of great vegetarian Thai restaurants there. And sort of due to the people I was hanging out with, due to circumstances, I just started uh, eating, eating at a lot of these places. And and one of the first things I realized, and, and I, I like food, you know, I, I, I was always a very hardcore meat eater. You know, I, I ate a lot of meat and I, I loved meat. Uh, and but when I was eating this really good fresh tie, I started to realize that actually I enjoyed the experience as much or even more uh, without the meat. You know, the entire cuisine, it's all about the balance of flavors and there's, you know, spices, ingredients. And I found it that was all much cleaner that came out more. I could get a lot more out of the dishes, a lot more complexity without the meat. And it makes sense because, you know, in your average Thai restaurant, you know, the quality of the chicken or pork is secondary to the quality of the spices and yeah. the the pastes and the blends and that sort of thing. So uh, that was kind of, you know, again, just sort of something that, that stayed with me. And I had a similar experience with Indian, Indian cuisine. So I was starting to think about, you know, those types of food were actually, you know, I didn't need the meat necessarily. I could eat a meal and be satisfied. But that, you know, combined with, again, what I was talking about working on these projects. And I think um, around the time I was going back to business school, uh, a UN report came out on food sustainability. And that was one of the first main things I read about the state of affairs. And that really resonated based on, you know, what I what I had seen. And that kind of started to put two and two together. And my first reaction to that, and I had observed a lot of insect farming and insect consumption in Asia, and that was one of the things that the report talked about. I was like, okay, that that makes sense. I, I can get behind that. So I actually started looking quite seriously and spent some time working with some companies farming insects for food. So that was sort of my first foray into alternative proteins. And then as I continued to really understand the industry, it, it was then a combination of me being a bit more conscious about my eating habits and slowly, you know, focusing on more consciously reducing meat, slowly figuring out what worked for me. And then, you know, the more you understand, the more you start to look into the health implications, the environmental implications, um, the more you see the opportunities in the industry. Uh, it just, it started to, to build. So I find insect protein very, very fascinating. Would that be considered a sustainable source of protein? I think generally, yes. There's still a lot of issues in the industry. I mean, I think everything is relative when it comes to sustainability. And, and this is one of the one of the conclusions I, I came to, again, after having worked with several companies in space. And I think it is an improvement for sure. Uh, when you're talking about replacing something like fish meal with insects, it's absolutely a step in the right direction. But like anything, you have the issue of that you still have to scale a whole industry around intensive farming, around, you know, using 
huge amounts of living creatures to uh, to feed into an exi- already broken system. And most of the insect protein that's being discussed, invested in, there's some for human consumption, but the vast majority of it is being looked at for feed. So it's still going into, you know, as an input to an inherently broken system, which is our the rest of our animal. And I think you can debate a lot. There's a lot of back and forth discussion around the ethics, the philosophy. I, I, I really couldn't weigh in on, on that around, you know, farming insects. But I, for me, it's about removing inefficiencies in the system. And every time you're feeding, even if it's food waste, and there's a story around that with insects, but it's not always actually in practice how, how it works. Anytime you're feeding another species in an inefficient way to feed another one to feed us, it just doesn't make sense. You know, at some point you just have to go directly to the source. And we have so many other materials. You have so many plant materials that are not being used, that are not being uh, explored at all, and that we can eat directly. There's so much at our disposal. So economically, from a business standpoint, to me, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, speaking of that, because I read an article about plant-based meats possibly becoming cheaper than meat. Do you see that happening? I, how near? I don't know. I hope so. But I th- definitely sort of mid to long term, I think it's inevitable because, A, the, what I was just saying, you know, you have so many inefficiencies. If you look at the conversion efficiency to feed you know, from cows, it's something like 20 times down to chickens are a lot more efficient, but still you're the you're inputting, you know, however many kgs of feed, whether it's soy or, or corn or whatever, to get one out. It's an inherently inefficient system. And then that doesn't even really factor in all the, you know, wastage and resources required just to raise those animals, which is huge. Uh, so there's so much room to improve efficiency, to cut out, you know, the middlemen or middle animals in this case. And also the the costs of uh, of operating, you know, meat with all the contamination, with all the food safety requirements, the logistics of transporting and processing animal products is much, much more intense than uh than with plant products. So, and a lot of the cost issues are related to the subsidies that meat and dairy gets as an industry. And I think, my, or my hope is that, that both elements will contribute to massive, massive price reductions down the line. But there's still a lot of politics, there's a lot of factors uh, that have to be addressed before that happens. So speaking of subsidies, I know being based in Singapore, the government is starting to invest quite heavily in plant-based meat alternatives. What's your experience been being in this space in Singapore? I mean, one of the reasons we're here is because we're seeing, you know, the start of a very, very strong and exciting ecosystem being built. And, you know, part of that is there's been a lot of funding announcements. And I think you'll start to see that money being deployed fairly soon. I think, you know, there's still a lot of work being done around the strategy and, and execution side, but now we've seen a huge amount of interest and early support. And you know, as a super early startup like us, being able to engage with the types of government agencies and research agencies here, and and you know, being able to to be a strong part of the ecosystem early is is really valuable. And and it's 
it's really a great part of, of being based here. Yeah, I'm, I find it really fascinating because I think the very first time I met you was at Grand Hyatt, the DFSS, and I was actually really blown away with what's actually happening in this space because, I mean, I, I based half my life in Australia, but coming to that event, I mean, I saw Shoke Meets being launched and yourself, you were moderating a panel and also the IPO with Beyond Meat as well. So with that in mind, do you think more plant-based companies are going to that level from your perspective, like getting IPO? We'll see. I mean, there's some big ones, but food is a tough, tough industry. I think there's a lot of various outcomes, you know, and, and you don't have to IPO to be successful as a business. I think not everyone will be able to, and many will be acquired by other food companies. Many can just build out good industries. But I think what needs to happen is you just need to have, and what you're starting to see happen is, aside from the IPO, there's many other success stories mm-hmm. through acquisitions, through just companies becoming profitable and operating. And I hope you'll see a lot more of that. And companies just building great products and doing what they like want to do. Yeah, exactly. I think you know if your only goal is to IPO, you should be built, especially when it comes to food. I think you know the focus should be around doing something because you're passionate about it, and that's what we see a lot of. Which is, you know, but yes, I think in terms of industry dynamics and market opportunity, there's it's a great time. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of attention. There's a lot of capital coming into the space. So that creates a lot of good opportunities for people working in the space. Speaking of capital, I know of a big giant corporations like Tyson and Nestle coming into this whole plant-based space. So um, what's what's your take on that? It's it's a double-edged sword because, of course, you know, it's it's always a bit worrying for, for smaller guys like us. But again, food is a huge, huge space. There is so much room. It's, you know, Tyson and Nestle are huge companies, but there's also many other small food companies that do very well that you never heard. I mean, there's room for a lot of players in this space. And there's room for, especially I think consumers increasingly want, you know, to be able to connect more with brands. There's still, on on one side, it, it validates, you know, that this space is growing and there's real opportunity because for companies like that to move heavily into the space so publicly and so quickly shows that there's a serious, serious opportunity. And, you know, again, are we going to compete head-on with one of those companies? Not for at least a very long time. But to be able to, if the opportunity is that big that that they're doing it, that means there's space to be carved out. There's, you know, there's there's still a lot of room for a variety of products. We It's not just about making blended burgers. It's not just about, you know, replacing a certain amount of our meat with soy products. It's about having a variety of choices, having a variety of products, making it as accessible. You know, I mean, the ultimate goal, I think, for everyone in this industry, and there's so much room to for everyone or many people to carve out a piece of this and, and focus on a specific area, is to have a plant-based alternative for almost any product that is as good or better. And I find that really fascinating when I went to DFSS as well. The impression that I got from that event was it was more a collaborative mindset. It wasn't, you know, you had different companies offering different products, but really it wasn't about competition. It was, it, it seemed to me like everybody was mission driven. Yeah, no, I, I, I would definitely agree with that. I think 
it's very rare to find someone in the space who is sort of very closed off and and not aligned with sort of growing this as a whole. And I think it's generally quite a supportive and and fun industry to be a part of. And even with the bigger players, I mean, you know, Tyson is also investing heavily. You know, they they exited their Beyond stake, but they're still heavily invested and actively investing in similar companies. You have the same from from Cargill and these big incumbent players. Most of the big companies understand that they do need to work with startups. They do need to be connected. They, Even though they have huge power and huge resources, they they can't act as quickly. They can't adjust as fast. They're not as in touch with sort of the new face of, of consumers around the world. And so there's a need for food brands to be more localized, more niche, more connected. And, and But you know, smaller companies like us, we also can benefit a lot from those huge companies and their and their resources. So there's a lot of collaboration. We've we've seen that a lot. I mean, we've had a lot of discussions with a lot of big companies. There's a lot of programs now launching and being set up by a lot of these companies to support startups like us and it's, yeah, generally, I would say, overall, it's quite a collaborative environment. Yeah, I spoke to someone the other day, a venture capitalist company, and they're wanting to actually create an incubator for startup companies. And I find that really, really fascinating. They specialize in plant-based um, companies. They just want to see them succeed. And I think that's amazing. No, we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of that as well. And again, it you know, on the one hand, it shows that people care about the mission, but also that there's a great economic opportunity. Because if that doesn't exist, then that only gets you so far of on course. the mission side. Of course. And for us, that's important as well. You know, it's important to balance mission and, and profits in the long term. Um, but uh, absolutely, you know, it's, it's, and it's rare to find an industry that has both those elements where you really can have a really positive impact and ideally make a decent amount of money doing it and is so ripe for disruption. I think there's that sort of perfect storm brewing in food and a lot of people are are starting to to see that. Yeah, I 100% agree because at the end of the day, with any conscious company, it's about, of course, you you need to have a social impact, uh, environmental impact, but you need to be profitable to, to really get your product out and to, to really scale. And to sustain it. I mean, yeah. if you can't run a business in the long term, I mean, if, if you introduce these products and, and can't sustain it, then your impact is going to be negligible after a short period. For sure. So I want to go into plant-based meats because there is this argument like, you know, for example, Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat, they're highly processed, highly refined. And I read a report the other day about um, glyphosate being found, a high amount of glyphosate being found in Impossible Meat. I'm not sure how how true that is, but what's your take on on that meaning that um plant-based meats although they're better they're still processed and bad you want food to be something that you know what it is that you recognize i think anytime that you're getting and i i like the impossible burger what we see is a need for more whole plant products for more minimally processed real products and we see a lot of demand for that as well that's definitely a response you know these are concerns that a lot of people have and it's good that people are talking about that you can't eat heavily processed things alone the impossible burger is an amazing alternative to you know when you're craving and if i'm craving a burger i would have the impossible burger not be able to go eat some beef burger but yeah, I think there's just a need for more options and 
if you can get a similar, and that's you know our thesis in starting this is if you can find these ingredients that give you a similar experience in terms of texture, in terms of how you can cook it using whole plant materials or or much less processed uh, ingredients, then you know why wouldn't you go for that the majority of the time? You can just like there's certain things regardless of your dietary preference or identity you just shouldn't eat every day you know i think we can all agree that you should eat a more balanced diet i think that's the general nutritional consensus whether you know those other things are bad for you and small i i'm generally a proponent of most things in moderation um but def- definitely we need to be learning how to eat more plants and, and understanding what those plant materials are and what goes into our food. 100%. I think it's contextual as well. Like It really depends on where you are in the whole spectrum because if you're eating a highly carnivorous diet uh, beyond meat and, and really like an impossible meat would be a great transition because you're free from a lot of the toxic chemicals that are found in the factory farm um, meat and food system. And eventually the goal is really to move along the spectrum. And for me, I'm a full advocate of a whole food plant-based diet, as you know. And the more whole plants that we eat, the better. And and all that research on health, uh, longevity is not on things like Beyond Meat. It's on a whole, pretty much uh, with the blue zones, it's a whole plant-based diet. So with that in mind, I I, w- I definitely want now want to go into Karana Karana, which is um, what what your brand is. I mean, even going in, before going to Karana, why have you decided to choose jackfruit? So this was actually you know a few years back. I I had just I was kind of this was about around the time where I was much more consciously eating less meat, uh, and I had just I think done about ten days where I was pretty much exclusively vegetarian, and that you know was quite a big deal for me at that point, and I was feeling really good about myself. And I was in London. I remember I was at uh, this sort of hipster night market with a bunch of friends, and and we were all getting different things to share, and I, I was eating this taco someone had gotten and I thought it was like a really good like pork carnitas taco and at first I was impressed by like the standard of a taco by by you know UK London London standards so I went back to the the stall where they got it to get some more and it was a vegan Mexican stall and it was made with jackfruit and I, I'd lived in Southeast Asia for a while I knew jackfruit is a sweet fruit wasn't actually a big fan um, so I was quite surprised and it was just before I was moving back to this region. I was doing a project between Singapore and Indonesia. And I was I was like, that was kind of cool. You know, I, I like that it's not a process because I was also not so into the process things. I wasn't, you know, buying and eating a lot of those things. Uh, but I wanted something that gave me that, you know, meaty, porky texture because I grew up eating a lot of pork. So I was looking for it when I was back here. And in Indonesia, I had it in like in good egg and some of the, the jackfruit dishes locally. And so it was definitely on my mind. And in Singapore, I was really struggling to find the young jackfruit, which I mean, to cook it as a meat substitute needs to be the young jackfruit, which is something I learned by doing a bit of of research online. But even finding that here, you know, with the exception of a couple of wet markets was quite difficult. And the more I started to understand about it as an ingredient, as a crop, as a meat alternative, the more interesting it became. So I was just trying to figure out, okay, 
what can I do with this? This is pretty cool. You know, this is something that it's starting to trend a little bit in, in the US and the UK, but it seems like there's a lot more to, to be done, you know, this versus just a textured soy or wheat or, or pea product uh, is, is a lot more interesting. Thinking about a lot of these plant-based meats, people worry about GMO, glyphosate, processing. So with a jackfruit plant, is that a lot a, a much cleaner source? Oh, I mean jackfruit, it's it's whole plant. You know, there's we're just using we're using the unripe jackfruit. Our our product that we're currently offering is totally organic. So, you know, one of the cool things about jackfruit as a crop is that it it's very high yielding and very low water intensive and sort of low maintenance in general very naturally. I mean, these things just grow. And so they tend to, they're not farmed intensively. They tend to grow, you know, across a lot of small and sized plots. They tend to grow, yeah, they'll grow wild a lot of the time. I mean, they just sort of grow. They, they don't require a lot of input from farmers. So they don't use a lot of pesticides, fertilizers, that sort of thing. Usually they're almost, you know, hands-off uh, trees. They just need rain. So from that standpoint, yes, super clean. Uh, so I mean, you know, we, a lot of our jackfruit currently, it comes from Sri Lanka and it gets sourced through, uh, you know, tea and spice plantations that are organic certified and it grows intercropped. So it's a very, it's really contributing to a better ecosystem. Uh, eco- exactly, exactly. So it has that biodiversity element. The other thing that's interesting is, I mean, we use the entirety, almost the entirety of the injector. I mean, not the peel, but but we use the core, the fibers. You know, when you think about jackfruit, if you eat it in the sweet form, most people just eat that bulb yeah. or that pod. That's funny you say that because I go to the fruit shop and I see the guy with a big knife. This this jackfruit, I mean, for those that don't know, it's probably, what, 20, 30 kilos? Oh, it can get bigger than that. I think up to 40 or 50. Yeah, and yeah. 40 or 50 kilo. And then he's just soaring through it. And basically, he's throwing away about 70% of the fruit. Yeah, easily. Probably more. Yeah, 70 to 80%. And so you're saying that you actually use that 70 to 80%. Yeah, so we use it at a very young stage of maturity. So the sugars haven't formed, uh, the seeds in the pods haven't really formed. So we can use the entirety of the thing. So we're reducing a lot of waste along the supply chain. And even when jackfruit just matures naturally on the trees, you know, a lot of it falls off, starts to rot, maybe some monkeys come and grab it and bite into it and or it's taken, you know, if the farmers have it stolen by their neighbors or whoever. So there's also a lot of wastage just in letting it ripen and, and grow. So using the unripe form helps reduce a lot of that. There, in general, there's a lot of wasted. People worry about protein. You know, that's why things like Beyond Meat and Impossible, they tout oh, X amount of grams of protein. So for jackfruit, what's what's um, what's the perspective where jackfruit's concerned? Because, I mean, it's pretty much, I would say, if we want to look at macronutrients, if we want to go down that path, it's more a carb, it's more a fruit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it doesn't have a ton of protein. It's, and we're not, you know, positioning it as a high protein. I mean, I think for me, and, and I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not positioned to give any nutritional advice, but... One thing I do know is that most people, especially in or people in developed countries who are food secure, who, you know, are essentially the target that we're we're addressing with this product right now, get plenty of protein. We 
In fact, excess. Yeah, I think we tend to get more protein than we need, and we're very protein obsessed right now in in society. And and my personal view is that that's a very easy way to push back against plant-based meats. You know. And I, I know and can appreciate that it's very hard to move away from meat if you've grown up eating that, if you really enjoy it um, for the taste and everything. And and it's it's a very easy response to say, oh, well, what about protein? What about my complete proteins? Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, everyone's an expert indeed, in complete indeed, proteins. Indeed. Um, and look, it's important to get a good nutritional balance. I, I'm not implying otherwise. But we all get a lot of protein it's not difficult to find alternative sources of protein. What most people don't get enough of, which is a lot more significant and is a lot less represented, is are things like fiber. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, the general nutrient profile that comes with eating whole plant ingredients. So, again, we're not advocating that people go out and switch every meal to jackfruit. Uh, it should be part of any kind of balanced diet. But, uh, yeah, it's a whole plant to get that texture, that meaty experience from a whole plant form is is more of our sort of unique positioning. Yeah, coming from um, an ex-carnivorous, high-protein, low-carb kind of perspective to whole food plant-based now, I look back at my fiber intake because like the RDI for fiber is probably about 30, 30 grams per day. And uh, an average person following uh, like a standard uh, American diet or more a protein-centric diet gets about 15 grams. However, if you're on a whole food plant-based diet, you're going to shoot past the 30 grams and hit like 40 to 50 grams a day easily. So really, I think when people ask me, where do you get your protein? It's where do you get your fiber? I think fiber is it's overlooked. And I think people really should start thinking about their fiber intake versus protein intake. So I want to go into your your product, jackfruit e karana. How how versatile is jackfruit? It's pretty versatile. I mean, so our our product in its current form, we 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 source it like I said in Sri Lanka. We have a version for consumers, which comes in a glass jar, and we have a version for for food service, which is a larger format. And uh, it, it's packed in a brine. It's all organic. It's just you know salt, water, lime juice. And that keeps it preserved, but there's there's still a bit of uh, you know it, it's an ingredient that's fun to cook with that you can get a lot of different textures and sort of meat applications. People a lot of times say it really resembles kind of shredded or or diced chicken or pork. That those are kind of the two main. You can depending on how you color it, how you cook it uh, with with seasonings, um, you can get more of a Beef like, and I think you look. can even get like a fish like texture. Yeah, as well, yeah. We we did a jackfruit chili crab with uh, one of chili the chefs crab. we work with. Uh, it's got those shredded bits, so it really actually does look kind of like you know pieces of of crab meat. Um, so, th- I mean, in terms of texture and look and application, yeah, it's it's quite versatile, but it it has a very neutral flavor profile and it mm. just sort of soaks up and absorbs. It's really a f- sponge for flavor. So it lends itself very well to Asian cuisines because things that have a lot of spice, a lot of flavor, um, it just it just fits right in with, with those kinds of dishes. So it's like a really like a blank canvas. Yeah. So I, I saw your Instagram uh, profile the other day and I saw you guys made like a char siu yeah, like, yeah. oh my, my <laughs> mouth is boring because I was looking at the the glow of the red jackfruit and it was I, I can't wait to try it yeah that's becoming I think one of our signature dishes just because you know it's something that it's so iconic it and is it's like 
the fact that you can get that experience, you know, that bite. And so we do that. We roast it. You know, we, we actually make our own char siu sauce. We focus on, and we've been experimenting a lot with different right. recipes. Well, you got to let me know the next tasting. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely do that. Um, but it's, it's that, I think that's just so mind-blowing for people. And people, when you give it to them, people actually do think it's char siu because you bite into it, it has that meaty bite. You know, it doesn't have all the fattiness. Mm. And look, I, I, I know what good char siu is. Um, but it gets you pretty, pretty close. It's a pretty, especially when you're eating it in the bow. Um, it's just, you know, you get so much of that similar experience, but you're eating that whole plant, whole fruit. And and I should say, you know, jackfruit, because it is in this unripe form, the sugars haven't formed, which is why it doesn't have the sweetness and smell of a normal jackfruit. It also means it's a low glycemic index food. So it's got a nice health story to it. Back to the the flavor profile, I, I remember the very first time I went to your tasting, it was at your place, and you had the dumplings, and it was, I could, I mean, I it's been seven years since I last <laughs> had a real pork dumpling, but but it was just, I was blown away. Yeah, it's, it. you can do so much with it. I mean, kind of anything, and look, dumplings are about, you know, at their, at their origin, they're about taking kind of leftover scraps, scraps of meat, of meat yeah. mincing it up, blending it with seasoning, with vegetables, with things a to stretch it as far as possible. Exactly. So, you know, most of the time when you're eating a dumpling, it's not about, you know, showcasing the meat. Yeah. It's like wrapping it up to hide it away because it's ugly and it's yeah. that last bits. And so... Again, you can deliver that texture and season it with the same things with the ginger, the sesame oil, soy, and make a great tasting dumpling. We do the same thing with spring rolls, with all these dishes. You know, you can bring out so much, even when we eat things like chicken rice, you know, there's some flavor coming from the chicken stock, but a lot of it is coming from the seasonings, from the ginger, from the the aromas. And when you start to incorporate those flavors you can really replicate very similar experiences using using plants definitely i think a lot of asian cuisine i mean like you said the, the cuts of meat aren't the best i would say even in western food you go to tgi friday so go to tony romas you have a baby back slab of baby back ribs it's all it's, sauce it's all sauce. Yeah. It's all barbecue sauce no. you know you're not going to eat the pork off the bone just like that without the sauce if you i mean all those places and like the burgers as well and everything it's full of salt i mean if you just took the meat they're using if you just boiled it or just grilled it without any seasoning, it would be horrible. Yeah. You know? And that's that's something that a lot of people just, we have this idea, and look, I know as much as anyone that meat can be really delicious. You know, we crave fats and things. And, and for most people, some people I think have a very easy ability to switch off of that. For many people, it's very difficult to move away from that. So for me, it's all about, and someone who appreciates food and appreciates depth of flavors and varieties and, you know, I appreciate how people cook meat from a culinary perspective. It's, and really we're focused on replicating that and working with chefs and showcasing, you know, that you can get as much, you know, of the good food, good taste element. When it's a bad from stuff. whole plants, exactly, yeah. With jackfruit, I know we chatted about this a while back about some misconceptions of jackfruit. Maybe you could share some misconceptions or some, yeah, what people might have. Because for me, I guess the mis my my interpretation and my perception of a jackfruit back in the day was 
to sweet. No, that's that's the main thing, and it's interesting because like in the U.S., it is trending as a meat substitute, but most people haven't heard of it as a sweet fruit or haven't tried it. It's starting to change a little bit now, but most people when they hear jackfruit, they're probably more likely to think of it sort of like a meat substitute than a fruit. Whereas obviously in Asia, it's quite different. So you know, we actually call our product Young Jack. We're trying to take the fruit part out of the equation because there's just this bias. I mean, if you just and we do this a lot with tastings with people where we'll present it and we'll we'll say, you know, would you like to try this dish without saying what it is? Or would you like to try this tersu? Or can you tell us what this is? And I would say the vast majority of people, their initial reaction is pork or chicken, uh, sort of depending on the seasoning or, or the or the dish we're using. And But if you present it to people as jackfruit, then they're automatically looking for that. They're looking for the the fruit element. And it's still, it's not going to taste like sweet jackfruit. I mean, and you can't really, there's some videos on YouTube that show people making, you know, pulled pork burgers out of a whole ripe jackfruit, which is just bogus. Like, it's just not, you can't do that. It's still going to taste sweet. But the unripe one really does get that that meatiness. And, and so it's getting people over that initial idea that, oh, it's it's going to be like a sweet dish. Um, and even some of the chefs we we approach, you know, when we, we, we'll go through our whole like pitch and, and thing, they're like, oh, can we make a dessert with it? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so it's it's hard to get to get around that. But, you know, it's something that uh, once people taste it, then that all gets solved. Yeah, I, I find that really fascinating because I look at things like sweet potato, which is look as, looked upon as a starch in Western cuisine, and you look at sweet potato here, it's all in a dessert. The great thing about jackfruit, it can go either way, whether you want it as a meat substitute or, or dessert. You've brought out this amazing looking, it's like a braised pork, and the flavor, I taste a bit of five spice in there. Five spice, soy sauce, what's what's in there? What else is in there? Vinegar. Uh, some chili, some spring onion. It's actually quite a simple recipe. I think there's a bit of uh, the, you know, the Chaoxing cooking wine, but it's pretty much your standard, uh, you know, simple braised. You know, this is kind of, it's nothing fancy. It's just about some good spice blends. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a slow braised and it's really, really good. And it, I mean, that just shows the diversity of what this product of yours can actually bring to to the market and and i'm really excited to see more of what you're doing because i think we went for the biryani tasting absolutely loved it the, the only thing about that was it was just a little bit spicy <laughs> yeah that's uh that's uh I, I i like it spicy but this weekend coming up we actually uh we're going to be featured at uh, meat smith has their they have a kebab party and this year for the first time they have fully vegan kebab. So what they do is they bring wow. in chefs from it's at their little India location, Meatsmith Little India on Sunday. And they have chefs from all over Singapore come in and do uh, a special kebab. So each chef gets an hour to kind of they create one signature kebab for the day. And one of the chefs we work with, uh Somia Venkatasan, she was one of the Master Chef finalists. She's making a fully vegan jackfruit kebab which is wow. going to be pretty cool and it's awesome that you know the rest of the event is definitely not vegan but that they're you know embracing this and and featuring that i mean i think it shows that even these restaurants that are hardcore meat-centric restaurants are, are starting to think more about this yeah i find that fascinating because meat smith as you can imagine it's pretty much a steak 
almost like it's a steakhouse it's a barbecue it's a barbecue steakhouse isn't it so from here on then what's what's next what's uh what's next for for you guys what what big goals do you have i know you got a few team team members new team members coming on yeah i mean definitely we're very focused on continuing to to build the team uh we're definitely focused on continuing to build the team we are uh really trying to you know we have our, this product but we are also continuously working on making the jackfruit just easier to work with especially for you know bigger kitchens that don't have a lot of time or ability to train a lot of different chefs on how to cook it we really want to make it as easy as possible for them to be able to use these whole plant ingredients cook them you know into the same recipes and same dishes they would be using chicken and pork and really just make it you know a one for one substitute so we're we're working on getting into a new product format that's geared towards that uh, and that's going well so really it's just about growing the awareness you know growing building our relationships and connections with these chefs and restaurants and you know as much as we can getting people to eat more jackfruit and less meat and and get out of that whole protein centric mentality and and really start focusing on fiber so i'd like for you to just give some words of wisdom to would be potentially entrepreneurs out there who are looking to possibly start a business venture in this space what 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 insights would you share with them to get them inspired to really start moving towards a more sustainable and conscious way of business practice definitely do what you're passionate about that's the first thing i mean because you have to you have to really love what you're doing and and really believe in it uh but you know work with what you know find things that impact your day-to-day life find problems i mean one of the reasons i started this was because i wanted these kinds of products and it was hard to get them. So, you know, that was a real problem. I I made sure that other people had the same problem because you want to be solving a problem. So, you know, find problems in your life that you're passionate about. See if it's an issue for other people. And if it is, then just start building something around that. And just have faith and just keep grinding. Just keep yeah, Exactly. You're like, yeah, it takes work. But if if it is something that you're really into, then that, that shouldn't matter as much. Indeed. So this is a question that I ask everyone. So what does being awake mean to you? I think it's it's about that that introspection and that consciousness and being able to, you know, look at yourself and say, you know, am I really doing as much as I can to to move in this direction? Am I really doing as much as I can to, to have an impact and, and really look at what's going on? And you know, if if something isn't right, then do something about it, do something to change it. Indeed. So for people who don't know Eat Karana, how can they get in touch with you and follow what you guys do? Yeah, well, please follow us on, on social media. I mean, we're pretty active on Instagram, Eat Karana, E-A-T-K-A-R-A-N-A. Uh, Facebook as well. If you're in Singapore, please come check us out. Uh, they're serving our tacos at uh, Freehouse for the rest of the year. Uh, Taco Mantra guys are serving jackfruit tacos there. They're really great popping up in more and more restaurants uh you know we post a lot about the events and collaborations we're doing so yeah or just send us a message you know we love to talk to people perfect well thank you very much dan really enjoyed our chat today thank you it's great i really hope you enjoyed my chat with daniel today i think the work he is doing and how he sees the future of plant-based is a great example of the changes that we are making in the world that's it for today's episode once again Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate you taking the time out and it really means a lot to me. 
For more information, any links or resources mentioned in this episode, or to find out how to connect with Daniel or Karana, visit awakemethod.com slash podcast. This is me signing off for this episode. Live once, eat plants. See you next time. Oh, 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 oh,